So this is Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son? And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Folks, it seems to me that uh, Christians living in Belfast just now are experiencing a, a monumental upheaval. Uh, something the likes of which I don't think we've seen in my lifetime, a seismic shift. Uh, I'm talking about our place in society, how we, a community like this, which is set on following Jesus Christ, how we fit into the, the greater uh, whole, the greater population, uh, our, our wider community. Let me show you in a diagram what I mean by that. Maybe I've lost you a little bit. Hopefully with a red circle popping up, um, that's Ulster Society. It's a place historically where disciples of Jesus Christ have felt very much at home. And there's a reason for that. It's because of our country's uh, Christian heritage. So we can trace back our Christian history uh, to St. Patrick, I, I think beyond. I think Patrick gets a role there as if he's the first guy who ever heard of Jesus in Ireland. I'm, I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, but we have 16 centuries or thereabouts, at least, of Christian witness in, in Ireland. So our laws are based on the Judeo-Christian worldview. So the worldview of Scripture is the worldview that has, uh, over the years, uh, created our culture. Christians have been very, very influential in the shaping of our society. So uh, it's Christians who uh, contributed to the founding of our healthcare systems, our education systems. 
Um, even if you know a little bit about the modern history of Belfast, of our city, um, Christians, Presbyterians actually, had an inordinately large role in the building of our city. So, you know, you know the motto, I've maybe said this before in church, the motto of our city is from Psalm 116. We have a Bible verse over our city. I don't know if you know that. That's who we are historically. That's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Red Circle Ulster Society as it's, it's been formed. So as I say, for as long as any of us can remember, followers of Jesus Christ, Christians have felt pretty much at home in this society. And let's show that by sticking a red, an orange circle uh, in there. Disciple. A disciple of Jesus can sit in the red circle and feel pretty much at home there. It's not to say that, you know, there wouldn't be, you know, at a personal level, people mightn't think it odd that you're taking Jesus seriously. I don't mean that. But I mean that in the culture, we were understood and allowed to live and, and really were able to, to accommodate ourselves quite easily. This is the shift I'm talking about because things are changing. In really a relatively short period of time, it feels like to me, this, this relationship is being redefined. Uh, the Christian worldview seems to me to be being rejected and pushed out um, from the center of Ulster life. So let me give you a couple of concrete examples. I'm thinking, for example, of the view of the sanctity of all human life. Uh, that, that's a view that would have been, you know, it's the kind of view that gives a culture a great hesitation um, about uh, welcoming on-demand abortion, for example. A culture that believes in the sanctity of all human life and takes that very, very serious, seriously. If that's a, a key value for you, then you're a slow culture to adopt um, any steps towards on-demand abortion. That's, that's what Northern Ireland has been in recent history, a place where we've hesitated to offer uh, abortion on the same scale as other countries, but not anymore. I think the polls would show that that view in the populace is changing. That's one example. I'm thinking of another example, uh, same-sex marriage. Until recently, the majority of the population and I'm not talking about church people here, I'm talking about the majority of our population, they would have held a view that marriage was between one man and one woman for life. They might have understood the difficulties that, that we had to adhere to that. A divorce has been with us for many years, but, but that, that idea of what a marriage is would have been understood and agreed really very widely in our society. That's no longer the case. Same-sex marriage, I suspect, will be with us very soon, only a matter of time. I'm not planning this evening, by the way, we did a bit of sexuality stuff before the summer. I'm not planning to talk about these things this evening. Okay, so we've mentioned those. I'm using them at the moment to illustrate. I'm seeing them as, as symptoms of uh, a moment in our culture, this seismic shift that I'm talking about, about how Christians in Belfast find themselves in wider society. So back to our diagram. 
The disciples of Jesus Christ would once have regarded themselves as comfortably accommodated in Ulster society. Those who remain committed to Jesus Christ are increasingly going to find ourselves on the outside, a whole different culture, or maybe we would even say a counterculture. I was thinking about this just two minutes before the service started, and I thought if I could redraw my diagrams, I would do it. I couldn't get to Johnny in time. Here's what I would do differently. I've shown the disciple of Jesus Christ to be the person who's moved. I think that's probably not accurate. I would probably have left the orange circle exactly where it was and offset the red one and said that our society has been moving from its, as I say, Judeo-Christian roots. Folks, life is changing in a massive way. I, I just had a real sense of that before the summer there, um, maybe the Presbyterian Assembly added to, to my sense of that, but just a sense of this dynamic. I'm going to come back to that later. Hebrews. I, I, just to entice you this morning, I told you what uh, David Gooding said about it in his introduction. A difficult to letter to understand, some have found it frightening. I thought, well, if that doesn't bring them out, what, what will? Hebrews is hard. I, it's going to take, take a wee bit of... Um, I've, I've found the courage to, to get started, but you know, pray for us uh, over the next few months to try and make sense of this book. This letter contains, uh, Stephen's already alluded to this, lot, a lot, a lot in here about Jesus. One of the things the letter does is it just takes Jesus and shows him, sets him on a pedestal, shows how wonderful and how central Jesus is. Another thing that this letter does, it's got some of the harshest warnings in the Holy Scripture in it. So this is dynamite for the, the head and the heart. It's, it's quite dynamic stuff now. Now, just before we come and start to talk about the letter, I want you to imagine something. So you're at the glider stop, you're ready to, to ride into town, and you notice lying on the floor a letter. It's not in the envelope, it's just the letter. Somebody's dropped a letter. And you have a look, and you, nobody's around. You pick it up, your curiosity gets the better of it. So you read the letter, okay? If you read a letter from someone you don't know to someone you don't know, you're going to understand some things. You know, we, we understand language, we understand... You, you'll have a rough sense of the, the kind of... Um, issues that the, the writer is trying to deal with. You'll have a, a rough sense of, of what it is they're saying about those issues. But unless you know the people and their circumstances, no matter how bright you are, no matter how well you're able to read and, and understand what's on the page, so much of the meaning will be lost on you. If you don't know who is writing, and if you don't know what the concerns of the person they're writing to are, you'll only ever get a fraction of, of the meaning of that letter. This evening, we're going to, before we dive in to read the letter, we're going to try to work out what this letter is all about. 
This letter wasn't written to us. I, I, I would argue a lot of preaching I've heard, maybe about from Paul's letters, underestimates this reality. One of my professors in college was very strong on this. He said, that letter wasn't written to you, Christoph. You've got to work out what it means for the Philippians, what it means for the Colossians, or, or what it means for the Hebrews. And then, then we ask a second question, what in that case might it mean for me? So we're going to try this evening to, to work out what the dynamics behind this letter are. We're going to think about who it was written to, why it was written, and what circumstances it was addressing. So who's it written to? At one level, the answer's dead easy. It's, it's written to some Hebrews, okay, Jewish people. We, we don't use that word as much. I think in the old days, didn't we use Hebrews more to describe Israelite, God's people Israel? Yeah, people are nodding, they recognize that. It's still there as a title of this book. It means Jewish people. There's no book in the New Testament that's more immersed in the Jewish worldview. As Stephen's already said, I was trying to count how many quotations there were from Old Testament passages. I think I saw seven in 14 verses there in, in chapter one. So it's a book that's full of references to the Jewish priesthood, to the tabernacle, to services, to sacrifices. As we read on, we're taken to, to moments in Israel's history. We're reintroduced to key characters from Israel's story. And in contrast, you could contrast it then to some of Paul's letters. Paul's letters are written oftentimes to, to Gentiles, to people who he, he has to explain things about Israel. There's none of that here in the book of Hebrews. We're just immersed plunged into the Hebrew world. So this is written to Jews who've been brought up in the Jewish faith, but it's a Christian letter, okay? So it's written to Christian Jews, Jews who have taken the decisive step of recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Where did these Jews live? When was the letter written? We don't really know and I'm not sure either of those questions add a lot to the interpretation, so I'm not going to dwell on them. I hope that's okay. Feel free to read up on that stuff yourself. So the first question, who's it to? It's written to Jews who have chosen to believe in Jesus Christ, responded to Jesus. Why was it written? Very quickly, let's get to this second question, much more important for us. We're going to we are going to drop into a small part of the letter this evening. If you turn with me to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 32. If you're looking for a page number, that would be 1,208, if you're using our pew Bibles. Chapter 10, verse 32. At this point, we get a bit of an insight into why, or into the circumstances of the Hebrew Christians and why this author is writing to them. They've received the light, he says. They've professed their faith in Jesus, and as a result, they're facing persecution. Sometimes they were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times they were standing side by side with others who were receiving that treatment. They sympathized with those in prison, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. So these guys are facing opposition because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. 
So this letter has been written in that context. There's persecution, but the letter goes on to tell us a little bit more about that. It tells us the effect of this persecution. Some were beginning to give up meeting as Christians. Look back up to verse 25. Quite a famous verse. Ministers use this verse a lot. I think it's funny. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Maybe, I don't know if you've ever had that preached at you. If, if you were thinking of taking a night by the fireside. There's a very specific reason why the writer is, is using that language and that idea here. Folks, this is, this is again not a very uh, dissimilar context into which we find ourselves today. I was chatting with one of our members just this week and he was telling me about the tiny congregations that there are meeting in some of Belfast's biggest churches. These landmark churches with a dozen people meeting in them. Church going as a phenomenon is dying or is dead, that, that sort of social habit. For a number of years, people used to talk about um, you know, that young people were conspicuous by their absence in our churches. I wonder if, in, in a lot of cases now, it's, it's people who are conspicuous by their absence in many of our churches. People are giving up meeting together. So the writer to the, the Hebrews, he's observed this persecution that his readers are experiencing, and he's seen that some of them are giving up meeting together. And so he writes this letter to encourage them to persevere. He wants them to hold fast the faith that they have professed. There are a lot, of, a lot of urgings in this letter and a lot of warnings. Uh, maybe I'll show you a couple of these just on the way. Flick back to chapter 4, verse 14. Sometimes these New Testament letters feel very theological. You sort of imagine that the people who write them are, are just trying to impress us with theology, but that's, that's not the, really the case. They're always trying to, to move us to a response. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, therefore what? Let us hold firmly the faith we profess. So this writer's concerned for some people who once professed faith in Jesus Christ, that there's a danger of them slipping away. He reminds his Jewish readers at one point of how they're brought up in the, uh, how God brought their forefathers out of Egypt. He brought them right to the edge of the promised land and how some of them refused to enter. In chapter four, verse one, he says, I'm worried that the same pattern's gonna repeat itself. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Do you see that? He, it's, a, it's a pastoral letter. A pastor saying to the people, hold fast, take care. And in chapter six, we'll not look this up, but he talks there about the, the serious consequences of having been enlightened and then falling away. Chapter 10, he warns leaders about, about deliberately continuing to sin after we've heard the truth of the gospel. You don't get a whole lot of that these days, do we? 
Maybe it's a good time to read this book of Hebrews. The writer knows of the circumstances of these Jewish Christians. He knows that many of them are are tempted to, to fall away. And he's writing to them, encouraging them to hold fast the faith they've professed. Who's it written to? It's written to these Jews who've accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah. Why has it been written? To encourage them to persevere in the face of growing persecution. A third question we want to ask, what are the real circumstances behind this? I want to share this with you. Um, This is the bit of my learning this week that's most helped me to to really prepare to, to read Hebrews well. I think. We've got to really get to grips with what was going on for this additional audience. So let's go a bit deeper. These Hebrews who first received this letter, they've been brought up in the Jewish faith. I don't know, some of you are probably lifelong Presbyterians, maybe. I know a lot of you aren't, don't worry. For those of you who are, it maybe goes a few generations in your family with 400 years of history of Presbyterianism. This is the Jewish faith. These guys have millennia of being the people of God, following the God of Israel. Their ideas of God have been tied up with the temple in Jerusalem, with the chanting of the Levites, the priests, the wonderful ceremony, the delightful pageantry, those ancient services. There was incense to smell, there was music to listen to, the high priest with his beautiful robes, the ordinary priests washing at the laver, worshippers confessing sins, holy sacrifices being offered, all in an atmosphere of awe and devotion. Millennia. And then one day, in a way that will have felt like it was out of the blue, Jesus of Nazareth arrives. And he claims to be Israel's Messiah, the Son of God. The Jewish nation, as we have just described them here, the the Jewish worldview, that, that whole body rejected Jesus. They rejected his claim that he was the Messiah sent from God and they crucified him as an imposter and a blasphemer. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit himself came and Jesus, in the preaching of Peter, was revealed to thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem that day. This was God's way of showing that Jesus was right all along. The Jewish leaders were wrong. Jesus, Jesus was both Lord and Christ. So these Jews, these early Jews, they've heard spirit-empowered preaching. They've seen spirit-empowered miracles. Thousands of them, 5,000 already by the early chapters of Acts were told They realize that they've murdered the Messiah in ignorance and they're glad of a chance to repent. So so in this very same city where Jesus has been crucified, a church is born. 
an orange circle lands in the middle of the red circle. It's made up of the Jews who have been baptized in the name of Jesus. We know this, okay? We know this from the book of Acts. What we probably haven't reflected on for very long is the experience, the ongoing experience of these Jewish Christians. What happened? Well, over the next years, the leaders of Israel didn't move an inch. They didn't ask themselves about this new community that was formed and growing. They didn't ask themselves, what, maybe these guys have got something right. Maybe we need to accommodate ourselves. Maybe, maybe we've just been slow to adopt here. No. They kept their view that Jesus was not the Messiah. And on the other hand, the Jesus movement continued to grow and to grow and to grow. And this growth of the early church had continued for years and decades. And all through that time, the, the official position of Judaism never wavered, didn't soften towards the Christian church. In fact, persecution broke out against the Christian people. I was talking to Claire about this, and it was, it was very interesting. Whenever you mentioned persecution of early Christians, her natural instinct was to think of Nero and the Romans. That's not the first persecution that the church faced. God's people in their early days were persecuted by Jews. Any sanctions taken against them by the Roman authorities were because Jews had agitated or caused riots or uh, accused them. So the, the Jewish community was very much against these early Christian Jews. So folks, this journey that I'm describing here, it started out quite well for the average Jew who became a follower of Jesus Christ because you could live in both worlds. Your orange circle was still in your red circle. So we read in the early chapters of Acts that the early Christians went to the temple. After the day of Pentecost, they kept going to the temple. Whenever Paul wants to, to introduce people to Jesus Christ, he always goes to the synagogue he wants to stay in the red circle. That's where he starts, even if he's going to reach a, a gent majority Gentile pagan city. As time went by, and the opposition from the official uh, Jewish community increased, there came a time when that policy was no longer possible. So the apostles started to withdraw Christians, Christian Jews from the Jewish synagogue. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch, they speak to the Jewish leaders who are opposing them. We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. it was becoming evident that Christianity could no longer be part of Judaism. That the two must part completely. That Judaism would continue on its own path and that Christianity would come out and take another road. 
We could describe the, the settled relationship of Christianity with Judaism something like this. Red circle with a disciple of Jesus Christ sitting outside. Whole different culture, counterculture. Maybe you're beginning to see, folks, why I've made this claim that I think this is a good time for us to have a look at the book of Hebrews. There's something going on in the, the time when this letter is written that, that resonates with the times in which we are living today. But let's, let's imagine ourselves, put yourself for a moment in the shoes of one of these Jewish Christians. You've been brought up in Judaism. Judaism, by the way, isn't, isn't a religion. It's everything. <laughs> it's your national identity. It's your culture. It is everything. It is who you are. And now, this happens. This decision. Do I keep with my Jewishness? or leave it behind forever? Should I stay or should I go? There, there was a time when we could have it both. I've, I've talked about that. We could have Jesus and the temple. It seemed we were able to run with both for a while. Now it feels like we're being asked to choose between Jesus and the temple. Jesus' sacrifice and the animal sacrifices. Between Jewish politics and a Jewish capital and a homeland and capital in Jerusalem and a Jewish homeland on earth or are we now strangers to this world and citizens of another city has it finally reached this either or stage Judaism or Jesus yeah that's what's happened that's what's going on for these folks to whom this letter is written. David Gooding, again, in his commentary on Hebrews. These people were soon to face the greatest crisis in all their spiritual experience. They deserve our deepest sympathy. Faced with the problems before them, some of them were wavering. Some had stopped meeting with believers. And I think we can now see what was going on in their minds. We can see too what must have been going on in the heart and mind of the person who wrote this letter. He cared for them. He saw the grave crisis before them more clearly than they did. The all-important question, which way would they go? I said at the outset that I think this is the right moment or a good moment for us to study this book of Hebrews. This journey speaks so, so well to the situation we're facing as Christians in Northern Ireland today. The Hebrew Christians had been pushed out of the mainstream of Jewish society. They were facing misunderstanding and persecution. They had a choice to face. Do I stick with Jesus? Take what's coming? Or do I give up? and just settle for my comfortable place in Jewish society. 
I don't think this is very unlike where we are today. More and more we're finding ourselves out in the cold and we too have a choice to face. I think we're already facing it. Maybe it still feels like it's a a subtle sort of a thing. I I don't know. As a Presbyterian minister last June with the way things were going in the media, I didn't find it subtle at all. I found myself right in the, the eye of all of this. We have a choice to face. Will we stick with Jesus and be part of a radical counterculture or will we go back and settle for something that's acceptable and respectable in polite Ulster society? We're almost done, but I want to spend a moment. I haven't dealt much with text tonight. I'd like to spend, have one quick glance at a text. This question about going back. Chapter 10, verse 29. A couple of minutes and we're finished. The writer's not pulling any punches here. He's asking this question, what would it mean for these Jewish believers to go back to Judaism? And he spells out the implications of that choice. He says that to go back would be effectively to do three things. Anyone who goes back has trampled the Son of God underfoot. Folks, the whole basis of the Christian faith, the whole basis of its uh, differentiation, if you like, from Judaism, is regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. When a Christian Jew steps back into mainstream Judaism, they trample underfoot the Son of God. They deny the identity of Jesus Christ. Second, says the writer, same verse. Anyone who goes back has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. It's clearly related to the first. If, if you say that Jesus isn't anything special anymore, if you backtrack on that, then you say that his death on the cross and his blood shed, that death's no different than any other death, and that blood has no more power to save us, to, to win our forgiveness than any other blood. You count as common the blood of the word of God. You reject Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. Third thing that a Jew would do by returning to Judaism from the Christian church you'd be insulting the spirit of grace. Everything that God gives us in Jesus, he gives us in his grace. The work of Jesus on the cross for undeserving sinners. To reject Jesus is to take all that kindness of God undeserved and to say, no thanks. I don't need your grace. I'll make my way on my own. Folks, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable once we have known Jesus to step back. To turn back from Jesus to anything else is simply not an option. I 
I was trying to work out what, what do I think Hebrews is about. The, the title I've chosen for our series is No Plan B. As we study Hebrews, we will see that Jesus is plan A. He is the best. He is sufficient. He is the only. He's plan A and there is no plan B. That's all fast. Well, wait. 